Welcome to the Quilting Arts Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the world of contemporary art quilting. I'm Susan Brubaker Knapp, and I'm here with my friend and co-host Vivica Hansen Denegri. Hey, Vivica. Great to see you again, Susan. How have you been? Good. Enjoying the fall and trying to get some work done and trying to focus. Yeah, that focus part, that's the hard part these days, isn't it? Trying to get it all done and um, stay on task. I don't know about you, but I've been doing a little bit of clearing out of my studio, and I have found recently some really beautiful things that I started and never finished. Do you ever find yourself doing that? That is really interesting because I've been doing a lot of that too. I thought it was just because I'm still dealing with the move (laughs) and the reorganization and putting my studio together. But I think it's been sometimes hard for me to think about new work, but I have a lot of old pieces that I've pulled out and finished in the last few months, and I have a lot more to go. I've been doing some of my cross-stitch pieces that I had stuck away, and I'm working, I am working on one new art quilt, but I think if there's something very satisfying of finishing these pieces that have been sitting around for a while. Maybe it has to do partly with the times, with COVID and the stuff happening in our country, but just being able to finish things <laughs> is great. I agree. You know, there's something about working from my stash, too. And I know some people hate that word stash, but I don't mind it. I'm working from the beautiful stuff that I already have in my studio. And I'm working on projects that I had started. And I am rethinking projects that I'd started too. Because, you know, sometimes I'll just, you know, when I'm editing something, I will say, oh, I really like the way that artist works. I I should really try something in that style. And probably like two or three years ago, we had this whole series that was being done in the magazine about color and texture and improv. And it was authored by Maria Schell, whose work I just adore. Mm, And so I had made a number of blocks channeling my inner Maria Schell. And I can tell you, A, I am no Maria Schell. There is no (laughs) way that I could even put my name on the same line as hers. But um, so I had a number of these blocks, like eight of them. And I thought, you know, they were somewhere between eight and 14 inches. And so I'm like, darn it, I just need to get these out of the work in progress pile or, you know, half done pile. And I decided that I'm going to, you know, plan ahead for the holidays and make them into hot pads, basically. Oh, nice. Yeah. So not really an oven mitt, but I I don't really like oven mitts as much because I don't like the thumb part of them. So I thought, oh, I'll just have this set of coordinating hot pads, which I think is sort of fun. So I've got like nine now. And then I, I had a bunch of other blocks from different projects and I kept working on those too. So that was my last weekend project. And this weekend, I have several quilts that need to be quilted. And I'm working on a brand new Bernina machine. So I'm practicing my quilting. It's like so exciting. You're going to enjoy quilting on that new machine with the bigger neck and the bigger bobbin. It makes a huge difference. It does make a difference. I don't think I've gone through a whole bobbin yet. And I've been like sewing for a week and a half. So it's that tells you how much I'm sewing too. But yeah, it's really nice to have that. It's crazy, isn't it? Well, I think it's interesting. You know, when I teach, a lot of my students talk about how they have got to finish their UFOs. And I've always been of the mind that you'd learn new things as you work, and it's okay to set them aside, maybe never even finish them. 
I do that a lot. I have, I remember my, my guild had an exercise years ago where we were supposed to go back to our studio or our home and count up all of our UFOs. And I stopped writing them down after a hundred. Well, what was this supposed to be? A parade of shame because you just decide you don't want to finish? No, it was interesting. They had a competition to see how in the next year. So if the, what you did at like Christmas time was to write down all your UFOs and everybody brought their list in. And then they had during the next year, they had a competition to see who could finish the most UFOs on their list, which was about a fun thing. And it kind of motivated people to go back and finish the stuff. But what I learned from that whole exercise is that there's a lot of stuff I should just throw away because I took classes and I do projects to learn sometimes. It doesn't necessarily mean that I like the results or that I need to go any further with it. It's a process rather than a project. I forget who said in one of our previous podcasts, it might have been Anna Buzzolino, that there was something about it's okay never to finish a project because it's only fabric. And, you know, in the same way that like if I'm making a paper collage or drawing or something like that, it's only paper. It's only, you know, something that doesn't have to necessarily be kept. Now, it's not okay to just throw out a bunch of fabric because we do know that textile mm. trash takes up an awful lot of our landfills. That's not okay. Yeah, yeah. And we can certainly cut things up and use it as stuffing. We can use things as rags and stuff like that. But I'm with you. I've got some pretty ugly things that I've started or things that I'm just absolutely not interested in finishing. And I don't think that they have a purpose, mm -hmm. but I do as a Yankee, I have a really hard time throwing anything out because like I've got all sorts of old sayings. Sorry, you're going to hear them all. Use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without, mm -hmm. I think was something that my mom said a lot. So, you know, I feel like with my stash, I want to use it up. Here's another thing that my guild did that I thought was super smart is we had a little auction. So everybody brought in their UFOs that they didn't want to finish sometimes with the fabrics and the threads and whatever else. And we had an auction and we all traded them to each other. Kind of the equivalent of what used to happen in my old neighborhood where people would put their old furniture or what they didn't want out on the curb and then somebody else from the street would grab it. So all that happened was that the belongings all just rotated from house to house in our neighborhood and never left. We had a yard sale. We had a fabric sale at my guild for that very same reason where, you know, I think it was 50% went to the guild and 50% went to the person. So at least you were getting something back mm -hmm. from it. You know, that sort of brings me to a question. Have you ever tried a technique or wanted to try a technique and not quite gotten to it yet? You know, is there something in your list of things that you want to learn or things that you want to try? Is there anything like that on your list that you have not gotten to yet? Oh, I'm sure there are. I don't know that any come to mind because what I normally do is work within the techniques that I, because I, I think I went through my experimental phase and then now I've kind of honed down and I have a couple techniques that I really like to use and I'm playing with variations on them. For example, I do a lot of whole cloth painting. I've started doing more of a watercolor kind of technique. I've started doing a technique where I stitch first and then I paint, but it's all variations mm -hmm. on a theme. You know, I'm always seeing new things in magazines or, you know, from talking to guests on Quilting Arts TV. And I do sometimes come back and try new things. What about you? Are you, do you have some things on your list? Well, I think you know that I'm really trying to look outside of my genre and learn things outside of my genre. So I'm definitely trying new things and new techniques and seeing how I can apply some of those to 
fabric Mm -hmm. because I am taking, you know, some mini courses on calligraphy. I've done certain things for drawing because I'm very uncomfortable with drawing. But one thing I've always really wanted to do is to explore the human form, either through drawing, through photography, or through quilting. And that is something that I find fascinating because I absolutely love portraiture when it comes to drawing and painting from the standpoint of a viewer. And I would like to explore it more through my own particular art form, which is art quilting. So why do you like it so much? Because like, I've never really been drawn that much to portraiture. I mean, I love certainly looking at it when I go to quilt shows or museums, but it's not what I really want to do. And it's interesting to me that some people are so drawn to it and other people aren't. I think it's the intimacy. Mm -hmm. It's the intimacy between the artist and the subject Uh because it shows so much about what is important to the artist, but it also, you know, especially if it's a commissioned piece or something, it might show what is important to the subject too. And, you know, if you go to the Boston Museum of Art and you see all the sergeants there, or if you go to a portrait gallery somewhere and see, you know, portrait after portrait, depending on the medium and depending on all sorts of different things, you know, it just, it's, it captures a moment in time and that person and that person's personality in such a way. So I'm sort of afraid of people. Me too, because I don't have any life drawing experience. Like I didn't ever took any classes in that. So me too. Some of it is that I just, I guess I kind of crossed it off my list because I felt like I was not capable of making that kind of art. A couple of years ago, I took a class with Susan Shy. She has a, um, a drawing class. And one of the reasons I signed up to take that class is that I wanted to force myself <laughs> to do people because she does people all the time in her own style. And it helped me. It pushed me. I did some beautiful drawings, one that I love of my daughters. And I did start making a few art quilts featuring people. So it did help me kind of get out of that. I still feel like I struggle because I tend to be so highly realistic that if things don't look really realistic. It bothers me, I guess. But it did help push me out of that. You made a portrait quilt of yourself, right? You made a self-portrait? Not real. I mean, I've done little studies, Uh but I have not made a self-portrait that I'm proud enough to put on our show notes or anything (laughs) like that. But I think this is an excellent place for us to take a short break and bring in our artist in residence who is so comfortable with the human form and with creating art quilts full of beauty and intention that incorporate people, animals, situations, etc. in such a beautiful way. So we're going to take a break and then bring back our artist in residence, Lee McComas. Great. Can't wait to talk to her again. One of the most intimate art forms we as quilt artists create is the portrait. Portraits are, for the most part, representational pieces of art that communicate time, place, emotion, and even drama. How the subject is captured and portrayed is up to the artist and can be as varied as the genre allows. From soft romantic portraits influenced by the old masters to the photorealism achieved by digital manipulation and somewhere in between, today's fiber artists have so many options to explore. Artist Lee McComas is an award-winning art quilter with a fascination for the human form and experience. Her art is all about capturing the artist's personal stories with fabric and thread. 
Using images of daily life, she works in a style she describes as contemporary realism with a unique process that combines looking closely, interpreting her subject through drawing and editing, layering fabric and thread, and applying her own special touch. Welcome, Lee. It's good to be here. It's good to see you ladies again. It is a treat, isn't it, that we can all see one another. So we have our our call basically to record this on Zoom. Yeah. And um, it's just wonderful to see a different face that I'm not related to. (laughs) I I totally understand that. We were so excited to bring you in to talk about portraiture. And when Susan and I were discussing who should we have to talk about portraits and art quilting portraits, the first person to come to mind was you because you've done so much with us on that subject. You've been on Quilting Arts TV. You've explored all different kinds of ways to make portraits. And you're really well known for this. You're an award-winning art quilter. You've won many, many competitions with your beautiful work. And I really love Love the way that you work. So can you tell us a little bit about why you choose to work with the human form so much? Oh, yeah. So I've I've given this a lot of thought. People ask that all the time. And um, at first, this was a really difficult question to answer because I think it's so ingrained in me. It's one of those things when you don't know why you do it, you just know that you do it. I think back my whole life, I've just been so intrigued with people. And uh, when I was younger, my family used to travel a lot around the U.S., you know, throw the family in the station wagon and spend two weeks driving around the country. But I always love to just watch people, to watch what they're doing, to see their faces. As I got older, I lived overseas for a while. And, you know, immersing yourself in totally different cultures was another chance to just study people. And I find it so fascinating. And then now I've been back in the U.S. nearly 20 years now. And I went through a phase of working when I started doing portrait quilts, working from these photos photos from my family's past and from my travels overseas. And finally, my husband said to me, why don't you ever do your own culture? And I remember thinking, is it really that fascinating? (laughs) It It is. is. First of all, yes. (laughs) I stopped and and just started looking around. When I travel, like used to go through airports a lot, love to get there early and just get a coffee and a bagel and just sit and watch people walk by back and forth and try and imagine what their stories are and where they're going. And I think there's so much that we tell the world about who we are as we walk through our lives. But I just wonder how often people are actually paying attention. So I wonder when you were talking about the comfort level that you had, if it's sort of like my comfort level with portraits, I am uncomfortable with the geometry of drawing a portrait and knowing intuitively you're supposed to draw an oval, you know, make an X in it and all that to find where the eye line is and where to put the nose and everything. But also I'm more comfortable like looking at my dog and doing a portrait of my dog because first of all, he won't judge me (laughs) if I do a really bad job. But second of all, there's, you know, a human is so much harder to me than an animal is. And so that's where like my anxiety comes in because I don't want to do something that's not going to be honoring the soul of the person that I'm doing a portrait of. And it's easier for me to just avoid people. And don't you find too that the people that you choose, the people you want to do your portraits of are people you adore, people who are significant to you. And that just adds to the pressure of, I 
got to get this right. A perfect stranger would be way better. Yeah. Start with somebody you don't really care about. I did. And then when you get people that you know and love, because, you know, you just get something off. The eye is a little off or the mouth is a little off and it doesn't quite look right. And then they know that you're doing a portrait of them and they want to see it, but then you don't want to show it to them because it doesn't look right and you don't want to offend them. Oh, well, (laughs) I I have to tell you a funny story. So my sister-in-law got married many years ago and one of our dear friends did a painting of their wedding photo. And it was odd. So what do you do when something is odd and you know they're going to come over for dinner sometime and they're not going to find that beautiful portrait they made of you? You bury it. You put it in the guest bathroom, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> you hang something on top of it and you just take whatever that is off when they come for dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, if I could just talk about my process a little bit, because I do an applique portrait class. And what we end up doing is working, and this works for pets too, although pets, you're right, are not as critical. And the precision is not as critical either, that you have that precision. So if you start from a photo that you love something that already works and you can photo edit it, you know, so you grayscale it, you posterize it. And then what you're doing is just dealing with shapes and you know that those shapes work. So it's a little bit different. At least the process I start off with, it is a little different than starting a drawing from scratch where you've got to do everything. So I think that relieves some of the pressure and it's exciting for me because when I do that workshop and people who are scared of portraits can go through that process and end up creating something that does look lifelike. And then they're so excited by what they've done. So it takes a little bit of the guesswork out. You're really talking about bridging bridging the digital divide too, because Mm -hmm. someone has to be comfortable, first of all, taking a photo, which we all should be now, since most people have that ability on their phone. They have to be comfortable with editing that photo down, either changing the number of values or number of colors that they're seeing or changing the colors completely. You have to be comfortable with sizing and scaling that kind of a piece. And then moving on from there. But at least now we have so many options. So what advice do you give people about choosing their photo? If you're going to work from a photo, because I, you know, I work from photos a lot too, although I don't do very many people. And I think it's really important. So tell me what you look for in a good photo, Lee. One of the things, if you're going to work with a photo is you've got to have light coming in, not direct, so that you get some shadows. So if you get a face looking straight forward, it's lit from the front. It's hard to translate that into fabric because it's just going to flatten when you start doing the photo editing. So I always say, have your person turned a little bit Front-on views are really intimidating or kind of in your face. So if the face is just a little bit off-center, not quite a three-quarter view, but a little bit off, you also tend to get shadows. And that makes a face more interesting. So you want one side of the face a little bit better than the other side of the face. And that aids in the photo editing. I always have people show up to my classes where I tell them to bring in a photo that are out of focus. And that for, for what my technique is, it makes it almost impossible because if you're trying to paint or reproduce in fabric and you can't see the detail, you can't get it right ever. Yeah. And it's amazing how many people bring photos in. They love the photo for some reason, but it's out of focus. It makes me crazy. <laughs> and the other thing that they do too is they'll take a big family photo, maybe on vacation, you've got this expansive view, everybody's standing in front of the Grand Canyon. And then they want to do a portrait of somebody in the back row. 
And so you have to take a really small section of a larger photo and then try and blow it up and work with it. And then again, they lose the detail. So I guess one of the other things is get close and get focused. Yeah. And I think if you're going to work from photos too, you have to be good at photography or get the rights to use somebody or permission to use somebody else's photo that's really terrific because so much of it depends on the photo. Mm -hmm. You know, photography isn't a snapshot. Photography is an art and it's all about composition as well. And I almost have given up handing my phone to someone and asking to take a picture because they get like your feet in the picture. I'm like, I don't care about my feet. Other than the cute shoes I'm wearing, I don't care about my feet. So I usually set up the photo for someone. And I used to do pet portraits. You know, many years ago, I did a whole huge series of pet portraits because I did love doing these. And first of all, they were memorial pieces. So for the most part, the pet was dead. You didn't have an opportunity to take another photo. And this is before everyone had a camera in their phone. And I got such poorly lit photos from people. I stopped doing it because it was impossible for me. I am not a confident artist to be able to turn the subject in my mind and capture it turned and capture it with the right kind of lighting. So I I finally just gave up doing it. At least with a lot of dogs, if it's a breed, if it's a specific breed, you can always go and find other pictures of that species and kind of make it up. But you can't do that with people. No, you can't. But you know what? We were talking about um, the photos. And what I'm finding is that the cameras in our phones are so much more improved. So if you're somebody who's keeping up with technology and you've got a fairly new phone, you can take pretty good pictures. It gets harder and harder to mess those up. But Vivico, I so related to what you said about handing your phone to someone else to take it because they don't get the composition that I like. And I struggle with that because I have a tremor. And so it's harder and harder for me, even with that anti-shake feature on your phone, it's harder and harder for me to take photos that are steady. So I have to work it all out. I have to kind of show somebody what I've got in my viewfinder and then hand them my phone and say, okay, you take the photo. But what that means is you don't get those candid shots. You can't just snap a quick photo of that really fun thing that just happened because by the time I get it worked out, it's like gone. (laughs) I don't think I'll ever capture my own birds because I'm sort of the same way. I'm very, very picky. I don't have the right lens. And by the time I have the photo composed, it's just too late for me. Yeah. In fact, we went through this last night, one of our dogs doing the cutest thing ever, although I can't recall what it was at the time. And so it's like, Jim, Jim, come here, take a photo of this, get your phone. And he's getting it all set up. He's getting, but, and just as he snaps the pictures, she looks away and walks off. And so it's like, ah, another missed opportunity. So do you think in these photos that it's more important to have everything just composed perfectly, or is it more important to be capturing like the values because you'll know what kind of values you're going to use, especially with a portrait? portrait like in a face. Wow. I think that's it. If you can get the face right, you can either make up the stuff around it or you just blur it out and say it's not important. You make it sort of obscure Mm -hmm. so you don't have to. Because really the face is the thing that we're drawn to. You can hint at other things in your composition, but you need to get the face right. I wanted to ask you a little bit about fabric selection because in the few times that I have done portrait quilts, trying to do a more realistic portrait. I've struggled with the flesh tones, getting the right fabrics for the face. But the other thing I really notice in your work, when I, especially when I looked on your website at the page that had all your portraits together, 
is your color sense. You have a definite color sense. So talk a little bit about how you choose the fabrics and what you're thinking about. Wow. So the first thing I do is when I'm traveling around, I buy every piece of fabric that seems flesh toned to me. And I'm looking from very light to very dark. And I have boxes of those so that I can pull from them. And then the thing that I do is I organize them by value. So I have tubs of fabrics. They're divided into color. Like I have my reds, my red violets, my red oranges. And then I pull out fabrics that I would think are flesh toned and keep those in a box. And then I go and I pull them and I lay them together and get a sense of what they are. And then when I've got multiple figures in a composition, every single figure has a completely different set of fabrics. Well, sometimes they might share one or two fabrics, but that way everybody has their own complexion. I also think about which face I want to come forward and which one to go backward. So probably the best example of that was last year at Houston. I had the piece called The Long Goodbye, which is an older couple where the woman is leaning down and kissing her husband. I love that piece. Mm -hmm. That is so moving. Just loved it. Didn't you have that? Was it at Visions? That was a smaller version. I had done a version of that composition and it was more of a portrait, you know, a tall version. Mm -hmm. And then when I was done with it, I just felt like it had this power to it and that it needed a bigger context. So that's when I made the portrait a little more intimate, cropped more of it out. So it was focused more on the faces and then I made it larger. And what I love about that piece too is this partly comes from, you know, my father had dementia or Alzheimer's. And I read that into the piece. I don't know whether that's really what was going on there or not. This is a piece that has um, an older couple with a woman kind of leaning in to kiss a man and his eyes are more closed. And my reading of it is that he's closer to death and it's almost like she's saying goodbye to him. Yeah. But the color choices that you picked, she was more warm tones, more normal flesh tones, and he was more gray and fading away, Mm -hmm. almost becoming ghost-like. Yeah, that's exactly where I was trying to go with that. And I think that I pushed those colors a little further than I might have because my sense was that that dramatic color change, the very cool colors in the man and the very warm, more lively colors in the woman helped hit home that idea of one of us is fading away. One of us is saying goodbye. So yeah, I pushed the temperature difference, the cool flesh tones versus the warm flesh tones. And I really made that a little more extreme in that piece to try and convey that same idea or sense. It was very successful. Mission accomplished. It was beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. Extremely powerful and moving. Yeah. And that's what I love about some portraits is that it's not just about the people. It is telling a story. And that is one thing that I really admire about what you do, Lee, is that you don't just do a portrait. You know, I guess you can phone in a portrait if you need to, but it's more than that. It's storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's just take a quick break and we'll be right back. a lot of pieces of people from other cultures because you lived abroad for a while. And I think that you tell the stories and it's kind of a humanitarian mission of yours in a way to show the rich cultures and vibrancy of people all over the world so that when people look at that, they feel like they're part of this human family. And that definitely comes across in your body of work. Oh, I so appreciate you saying that. Part of the journey that I've been on recently is trying to go back to that question, why don't you do people from your own culture? 
And maybe it's the time we live in, but I've come to realize that our culture in America is so diverse and we need to embrace and appreciate that. And maybe I appreciate it more now because, oh my gosh, it's, it's even hard to talk about this without getting a little bit choked up. I think because I tend to live, well, I do live in a remote place in the mountains. So, you know, it's 40 minutes for me just to get to a town and I'm feeling really cut off from people. I watch the news and I think, wow, I wish I could be there. I wish I could be a part of those events. Why aren't people telling the stories of all of these people that we're just getting snippets of? And And so I think we're in a time right now when we really do need to attend to the diversity in our culture and the people who live here and the stories that aren't being told. It's part of that sensitivity to what's going on yeah. outside of the world, isn't it? It's it's part of that understanding. And it's also part of your need to have probably nine tubs of fabric of different <laughs> color types. And but this is so true. You know, I think about I think it was probably about a year ago, Carrie Bloomston, who's an artist who works in Arizona, she's a fiber artist, but her day job is teaching art to children, I believe, like middle school age. She and her group of kids worked with Crayola, I believe it was, to broaden color tones. You can't have a single flesh tone in your color palette without being so myopic that you have no understanding of, you know, cultural diversity and skin tone. And even within my own immediate family, four children and husband, we go from very pale to not so pale at all. So I think it's it's sort of important that we have that multicultural mindset when we think about portraiture. I can tell you there's a piece I've been working on for almost the last year. And in the end of it, it has between 35 and 40 people in it. And so for each of those people, I would go back to my stash and try and pull out a new set of fabrics. And it was a challenge. But one of the things I was really excited about was that I was able to pull that off, that my stash of flesh tone fabrics was broad enough that I could capture people with very pale, people with olive skin tones, people with brown skin tones. So I was excited to kind of pull that off. So, you know, I'm sort of wondering, as we're thinking about different portrait artists and portrait artists who work in cloth, who influences you? And it doesn't necessarily need to be someone who works in cloth, but I'm just curious, Lee, who do you look at as a great portrait artist that helps you think about portraiture? You know, some of that is changing. Initially, I did a lot of studies in classical Renaissance portraiture. And some of that was because my husband is a classically trained painter. And so we do a lot of studies with that. And I can even say the piece that I recently just finished was inspired by the work of Raphael. And he did this big painting called School of Athens. And it is fresco, I believe, on the wall of one of the rooms in the Pope's apartment in the Vatican. And what it was, was this classical building with a big front porch, and it's filled with all of the great thinkers, the great minds of the day. And so I used that as my inspiration for a piece I've just done. And the piece I did, I was asked to do for an exhibit on women's rights. 
and celebrating the 100 years of women having the right to vote in the United States. And unfortunately, because of the pandemic, that exhibit has been delayed twice. And now we're hoping it'll open in the spring. And my biggest frustration is that I put a year's worth of work in this piece. It's 10 and a half feet wide and it's eight feet tall. It's got almost 40 figures in it. And it is sitting in my basement because I have to wait for the opening of the exhibit. That is tough when you can't share your work. Oh my gosh. It's the only thing I've done. I've been obsessed with it for a year. It's the only thing I've done. And I really, I've shown it to a couple of my neighbors. (laughs) So here's the thing. We can't share that on our show notes, but we can share the picture of the School of Athens on our show notes. We can do the long goodbye on our show notes. (laughs) And if anyone wants to see our show notes, they're at quiltingdaily.com. And then you just search for our podcast and you'll find them. But yeah, I understand that frustration. Yeah, but I think where I'm going right now, I've I've been paying attention to some of the virtual exhibits that are coming online with really contemporary photographs and paintings of people, I think especially during the pandemic. And one of the things I'm noticing about that is they've got these great people, but there is a context behind them that really tells the story. And that's something that I want to push in my own um, portraits moving forward is trying to expand that telling the story with what's happening in the backgrounds. So Susan, I know you've done a few portraits. You did your daughters and you've done, you know, your amazing drawing and other things as well. But I was wondering if you've ever done a self-portrait. I haven't. And I probably should. I don't know. It somehow seems self-indulgent to me or kind of vain. (laughs) But I guess if I view it as a good exercise, I mean, I guess if you're going to learn to do faces, learn to do it on yourself because then you're not offending somebody else. (laughs) You could be. You definitely could be. And, you know, the funny thing is you mentioned before about self-portraits, like I've done the self-portrait and I couldn't remember. It's only like right behind me, an enormous <laughs> self-portrait. And I just think like, how, how could I have forgotten that? Yeah. I was asking you about it and I thought maybe, maybe somebody else made that, but I thought Vivica made that. No. And I actually did a whole episode on Quilting Arts TV about how I did that too. It was, it was actually done through a photograph and merging with a computer program because it's a pixelated portrait. And I'll tell you, you know, at one point, like five years ago, the modern quilters were getting very into pixelation and pixelated portraits. And there's the company out of Australia, it's called Upatch. And you upload your image onto Upatch. You do all of your own editing. So you edit an image down, then you upload it onto Upatch and they will actually digitize it for you and pixelate it for you and give you not only the pattern for your portrait in any size that you want, but they will also color match everything on your portrait to Kona. And they will tell you how Ah. much yardage you need for, you know, Kona number 107 or whatever it is. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to try doing this. So I took the page from my editor's note, like six or seven years ago, and I uploaded the image. And the person who owns the company actually did a little editing for me as well. So I can't even say that that pattern is all my own because she helped me out a little bit. But I'm like, I got this pattern and it happened within like five or 10 minutes. It takes no time at all. So I get this pattern in my inbox after I purchased it. And 
it was five feet, four inches wide by five feet, four inches high. And I am five feet, four inches tall. And so this enormous picture of my face, I don't even know what to do with it now that I've had it, you know, it's, it's done. What do you do with a quilt of your face that is so incredibly massive and talk about self-indulgent and narcissistic. It's the whole thing. All of it is. But- well, I don't know that it necessarily is. It just felt like it to me, you know, when I was thinking about doing a self-portrait. But yeah, I mean, it'd be perfect to hang like in your studio and, you know. Well, that's where it is now. But I think about all of the artists in the past who have done self-portraits. And I, I did a little quick Google search and I came up with like 100 before I could even blink that there are hundreds and hundreds of amazing self-portraits out there by absolutely everybody. You know, I think contemporary artists, I think of like Chuck Close's self-portraits, very revealing about who he is as a painter. And then, you you know, you go back to the 1500s and you can find portraits in the 1500s of self-portraits, but they're so telling. Oh my God. Yeah. Rembrandt did like one a week, didn't he? Oh, at least, at least. And then you think about like, it wasn't it Rembrandt's self-portrait from the Gardner Museum that was stolen? Uh, the Gardner Museum in Boston? I yeah. think it was a Rembrandt. I think so. Yeah. There's some just amazing self-portraits out there. What about you, Lee? Have you done self-portraits? You know, I'm looking across the room at one I did now, and actually there's two of me, but I never did them as portraits of me. So one of them is a six foot long nude, a reclining nude. And it was for a fine art exhibit back in Astoria, Oregon called Au Naturel. And then I never claimed it as me. It's done in these fabrics. It's called Material Girl. And when people would say, oh, is that you? And it was like, I can neither deny or confirm um, because <laughs> I, I was afraid that as a public school teacher, that that might come back and bite me. And so it was like, oh, I don't know who that is. But I didn't also didn't feel like I could go around and ask my friends to please come recline nude and let me take a photo of you for a quilt. So I had to use myself for that. But it's not really me. It's about the idea of being very materialistic and always on the search for stuff. Then there's another one I did where I was practicing a technique and it was just using snippets. So when I'm finished with my very realistic quilts, I have all these pieces of cutout fabric scraps with fusible on the back. And so I save all of that because, you know, we never throw that kind of stuff away. And I have tubs by color. And so what I did was I took a drawing of my face and blew it up and I marked out the different value areas. And then I just went looking for snippets of fabric in those values and collaged it all. But instead of doing a whole face, I just did half of my face. So I cut the image down the middle. And when I was looking and I smile, my eyes scrunch up. And there's something about doing only half the face. I have this kind of squinty eye and a big smile, and it just looks maniacal. (laughs) For some reason, you can't tell if I'm smiling or I'm an evil, vicious woman peeking out from the edge of the quilt. So that one never really sees the light of day. So do you think that artists who make self-portraits are making portraits of themselves as they want to be, as they want to be perceived? I'm always interested when I look at I go back sometimes and look at pictures of monarchs because I watch mm. a lot of shows like I'm watching The Crown oh, and Victoria yeah, yeah. And, and I try to go back. I did I did a little piece on Henry VIII after I watched that show, The Tudors. <laughs> so I go back and I look at like all the portraits that are taken of a monarch and it's fascinating to me how different they are and which one did that person really look like? Because before photography, we don't really know. Yes. And it's known that people, wealthy people would 
tell the artist, oh, make my nose smaller or my ears don't really stick out like that, or, you know, to make it more flattering. And if you wanted to keep your head or your paycheck, you went along yeah. with it, right? You yeah. made people look maybe more beautiful than they were. So how much do you think artists who are doing self-portraits change them to make themselves look better or cooler or whatever it is they're trying to do? I think they must always, you're striving for who you want to be. Why would you present who you don't want to be to the rest of the world? Well, unless you have a really bad self-image or, you know, like like I think about some of the Van Gogh portraits and he was dealing with his depression or self-hatred, whatever was going on with him. Um, And some of his portraits show a lot of pain and agony and someone who is very convoluted and confused. But think about it though, you know, you're showing what's important. So whether you're doing a self-portrait or you're doing a portrait of someone else, you're showing what's important. And I think back, Susan, to what you said about watching all these shows about the monarchs, I think there are scenes, if I'm not mistaken, in the first series of The Crown, or maybe it's the second one. Now I'm not remembering properly, but they talk about, they show having photos taken of like Princess Margaret and Princess Mm -hmm. Elizabeth when she was a princess, not the queen and all this and about the importance of clothing and the jewelry and the setting and the background. And Margaret was not an angel. (laughs) And yet she was photographed. Her portrait, her official portrait was so stylized as being beautiful and kind and all of these things that she probably, you know, she definitely was beautiful, but she had some real issues. So, you know, interesting what's important to get across from the standpoint of the person who is being the center of the portrait. Yeah. And in the TV show Victoria, and I don't know whether this is really based in history, but there is a scene where she is being painted for a very intimate kind of portrait with her hair down, which was, I guess, not done. Um, But it was a portrait for her husband, for Albert, and it made her look a little bit more sensual. So I thought that was really interesting, too. It was in a formal portrait, but that she wanted it to show her as a woman and a wife rather than as a monarch. Well, that way is how the artist can edit, too, you know. And it strikes me as I'm listening to the two of you talk that the portrait is really a combination of two things, what it is you want to convey about yourself. And then the other part of that is who is your audience? Who are you trying to communicate that to? So I think it may be important when you're looking at portraits of people to always keep those two things in mind. You know, why was this portrait done? What is the message that they want you to to get and who is it that they want the message to go to. And then I suppose, especially in this day and age, you have to think about, is the message really honest? Because a portrait is a really great opportunity to sort of present this false face to the rest of the world. Oh, yes. Yeah. That happens every single day. So, hey, before we end our conversation, and this could go on for hours, but before we end this conversation, I wonder if each one of us could think about two or three contemporary art quilters whose portraiture has influenced us or whose portraiture we really admire. I'm ready to go because I came up with the question, but Uh would you guys rather go first? (laughs) I don't know that I can think about Two or three, but Hollis Chatelaine comes to mind immediately. Oh, that's oh. mine. That's mine. <laughs> well, and I figured you that she might be an influence on you too, Lee, because she de- deals with a lot of other cultures. Yeah. And she also deals with issues of, of 
um, like social issues and environmental issues mm-hmm. in her work, even though they're portraits, like she did that one on with Desmond Tutu, which is about, mm-hmm. you know, world peace. And she does ones on water conservation and on, you know, all sorts of things. But yeah, yeah. her portraits are deeply meaningful. You know, her quilt with Desmond Tutu that won a prize at Houston several years back was the first time I was at Houston in person. And I stood in front Mm. of that quilt for the longest time. So, you know, when I was back there this November, one of her quilts won again. And it was so exciting for me to sit next to her at the luncheon and just talk with her about her work and what she's done. That was pretty special. And, you know, somebody else who's influenced me, and I think it's more my technique, I don't know if he's necessarily known for portraiture, but David Taylor, because he has this very Mm. realistic style. He's also a Colorado guy. And beautiful thread work. His Mm. his thread work is gorgeous, as is Hollis's. Mm. You know, they both add pounds of thread to their art quilts. That's for sure. Yeah. And Hollis has just finished a piece that has the, it's about voting rights with, I think it's three Black women holding up their I voted stickers. That's cool. And I wonder, well, if she shared that, because she and I are in the same exhibit. So if she shared hers, maybe I can share a picture of mine. Uh-huh. I'm going to have to talk to all <laughs> You know, I actually really love all sorts of different kinds of contemporary art. So mm. I've really, I can't say it's influenced me, but people whose work I really, really admire right now are Sandra Bruce, because I just think she has taken such a page out of Chuck Close's book and taken it her own direction um, in the pieces that she does, where she's actually, to a certain extent, working on a grid and adding color value and creating portraits all on a grid, which I just find truly fascinating how she's done it. And then, you know, sort of like sometimes you talk about someone being an overnight success and it only took them about 30 years to do it. But that is all through my social media feed right now is Bisa Butler. And her work is so stunning and powerful and colorful. And it just it's enough to make you weep if you look long enough. I'm really, really fascinated by what she's doing. Really creative. The other person that comes to mind is Melissa Avarinos, who does those really funky, modern, usually just the heads, the faces. I love her stuff too. Very, very interesting. And she has a book, I think, out on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Making Faces or something like that. I'll find it and I'll put a link in our show notes. It's terrific. I have the book and I've been thinking about doing something with it eventually. Well, you know, we could go and list on and on because <laughs> I actually have about 15 here on my list, just in case we wanted to talk about more. Well, I'm going to tell you about a print on the Hanami. So there is every year, there's a national portrait competition put on by the Smithsonian, the Outwin, and I never know how to say the other word that goes with it, but the American portraiture today is what it's called. And there was a portrait that was actually, it's by Sam Komen, and he took second prize in last year's competition, and it's called Jesus Sarah the Dishwasher. And that's a piece that just will not leave my mind. And it is just a young man who works in the kitchen in a restaurant, but there's something really, and maybe it's because it's the time of COVID, but I find the whole portrait really haunting. Well, we'll definitely put a link to that contest so we can find that. And so our our listeners can find it. Thank you so much, Lee, for being part of this conversation today. I always find it fascinating what other people find fascinating, really, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it's just been such a pleasure to talk with you and to have you as our artist in residence. It's been fun to spend the morning with you all. Loved it, Lee.
I just loved talking to Lee. She's always really interesting. And to hear her talk about the portraits she makes was really fascinating. It is fascinating because, you know, everyone has a different story. And that's one thing that I really love about the podcast is when we bring in an artist in residence who has a specialty such as portraits with Lee, you know, you really get a different perspective because portraiture certainly isn't my specialty, but I I have always admired it. Have you ever been, by the way, to like a portrait gallery, Susan? Oh, sure. Yeah. The first one I ever went to, I went to, must have been about a year ago. I had never been to a museum that was purely portraits. And I was absolutely fascinated because the genres were so different. It was everything from Maplethorpes, which is really different, back to paintings and really, really interesting to see how someone takes an image or takes a person and interprets them so very differently depending on their technique and their time period and what's important to them and everything. So really, really cool. I always wish that there would be a way to take all sorts of famous artists, big name artists, and have them do a portrait of the same person. Wouldn't that be fun to see that one person Person, but in a hundred different styles and techniques. I'll bet someone's done it. I bet someone has done and had that kind of a call. No, I mean like Renoir or Salvador Dali or what? A little late for Renoir. Yeah, yeah. But like if you could somehow get them all together through time travel and have them all do a portrait of the same subject, how fascinating would that be? It really would be. But I dare you, you build a time machine and then <laughs> put out that call for entries. And, and I bet we'd get some really interested things. If I could build a time machine, I'd be doing more important work than the portrait, I think. (laughs) You know, I would certainly hope so. That's a story for another day. Yes. So, hey, do you have a quote for us this week? I do. So this is by Oscar Wilde. It's from The Picture of Dorian Gray. And he wrote, Every portrait that is painted with feeling is a portrait of the artists, not of the sitter. The sitter is merely the accident, the occasion. It is not he who is revealed by the painter. It is rather the painter who, on the colored canvas, reveals himself. And let's just leave it there because that's perfect. Thank you so much for joining me today, Susan. It was great talking with you. Wonderful talking with our artist in residence, Lee McComas. And I really look forward to our next chat, which is going to be about setting our own artistic goals. Next time. Sounds good. For listening, remember there's lots more information about things we discussed in this episode, including photos and links on our show notes page. Just follow the link in the description to our website, quiltingdaily.com. If you want to hear episodes as soon as they come out, please subscribe. Just search in Quilting Arts Podcast in whatever app you use, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And when you do, please leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. The Quilting Arts Podcast is a production of Golden Peak. Media. It's hosted by Vivica Hansen Denegri and Susan Brubaker Knapp. This episode was recorded and edited by Chad Franson. Sarah Erickson is our web producer. Our executive producer of podcast is Jared Mann.